And as you get to Acts chapter 11, we've got to remember what we studied last week. Um, basically, Peter, uh, the apostle that everybody knows, because he's the quickest to put his foot in his mouth, Peter, who denied Jesus, um, God's saved him, he's brought him and he's given him this ministry of reconciliation. He's going to go out and proclaim salvation through Jesus. And as he's doing this, um, last week we saw him and God was still working on him. He hadn't arrived as a Christian. He hadn't understood everything about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so as he was hungering for the Lord, he was on top of the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. He was up there praying and the Lord revealed to him in a vision that he was going to go to who the Jewish people had considered for many generations unclean. He was going to go to a people that uh, they were very prejudiced against. They they really thought that salvation was only for Jewish people. That's what they thought. And they, they thought that Jesus came to save those who were already in the nation of Israel. And so the idea of going outside of those kinds of people to people that maybe had never heard, had never really crossed their minds. And Peter, in many ways, was open to that because he was already staying with Simon a Tanner. He was staying with basically a taxidermist. He was staying around dead animals and unclean things. And no doubt the house would stink because they didn't have a refrigerator to keep the, the, the tans that had rotting meat on them. I mean, it probably was not a fun place to stay, but he, God was already changing his heart to recognize that, that these people, though they were unclean outwardly, inwardly, God could do a work and, and change their hearts and, and make them right before him. God's not looking for us to be clean outwardly. He's looking for us to be surrendered inwardly and let him do that change from the inside that would eventually manifest itself on the outside. And so Peter's already open to this kind of work, but then God spoke to his heart about calling things that are clean by God, unclean, is not okay. You know, he basically rolled out a sheet before him with a bunch of meats that Jewish people were not supposed to eat, and they all looked at it, and he looked at it, and he said, Lord, I've never eaten these things. I can't, I can't eat these foods. And the Lord said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And so he didn't know what that meant, but then the Lord sent these three men from where Cornelius was there in Caesarea, and when they arrived, basically, they said, hey, we're looking for Simon, surnamed Peter. We're supposed to bring him back to Caesarea with us to our master. And when he did, he went there and he proclaimed salvation that came out of the Jewish nation through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he proclaimed that salvation to these people who were all gathered there. They were hungry. They had been gathered there by Cornelius, who had been praying four days earlier that God would speak to him. But what I want to point out is that Cornelius, the reason he was hungry for God is because he was a Jewish proselyte. That means that he was a Gentile, he was anybody other than a Jewish person, and he had heard of God's faithfulness towards the nation of Israel, and when he was hungering for something more than what the world had to offer him, he went to Jerusalem to see what it was all about, and he came to know the God of the Jews. So when he got there, the belief at the time was, in order to get close to God, you need to fulfill the rituals of the Old Testament law. So he was circumcised, and he went through all these things, and when he went through all these Jewish rituals and the law, then he was closer to God. But still, when he went back home to Caesarea, he still he wanted a closeness with God, and he, he knew there was, had to be more to it. And so he didn't hear about what was going on with Jesus, 
he just heard from an angel that God sent to him and said, hey, why don't you send for, for Peter and he'll proclaim to you salvation. He'll tell you what it's all about. So no longer do the Gentiles have to do these rituals, but just by calling on the name of Jesus and trusting in him for their salvation, they would be made right before God without fulfilling all these other things. Now we're going to see today that the Jews were not very impressed with this. To proclaim that they that these Gentiles who are unclean in their sight could just proclaim the name of Jesus and be his disciples and be made right before him. Well, what about all this stuff that we've been doing for all these years? It made them a little upset. So they started to criticize Peter. So, but what I want to point out is in Psalm chapter 145, salvation is not a new idea. It wasn't God's plan B. It says there in Psalm chapter 145, verse 18, that the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and he will save them. Not only will he fulfill their desire, but their desire, if it's in the right perspective, if it's based on truth about God and based in the fear of God, those who call upon him, he'll hear their cry and he will save them. And so, these men are both hungry for a word from the Lord. One knows the truth of Jesus. The other one is a man who fears God, but doesn't know that that fear can lead to salvation through a person yet. And so we got to know that anytime God gives us a word to share with somebody like he did Peter last week, we got to know that Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So God teaches us his word. He teaches us about himself so that when we hear it and receive it ourselves, we trust in it, then we, all, then we now have a message to proclaim to others. And Peter has just done this. He's excited. He's gone to this group who he thought was unsavable. He goes to them. He proclaims Jesus to them for the only way of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. And their response, before he's ever even finished with his message, they're convinced they're pricked in the heart. They understand we have sin that needs dealt with. We need this Jesus. And so they respond. They say, hey, we're in. What do we got to do? And he says, repent and believe in Jesus. And they do. They receive Jesus. They're trusting in him. And then God seals it. He seals the transaction with his approval by giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the seal on each believer. You and I we have the opportunity to receive Jesus and then as a response to that, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians teaches that. But what we see is that this seal, his seal of approval, it's kind of like a stamp on our lives. When he gave the Holy Spirit, it was a seal of his approval. It showed to the world that he was involved in the work that had just happened. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John? Jesus went out there and he went where John was baptizing and it was right before his earthly ministry started. And when he got there, he walked up to John and John goes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus said to him, I want you to baptize me. And John, being a humble man, understanding that if this is in fact the Messiah, that he is God and it's, it, I, I can't baptize you, Jesus. I'm not even worthy to... Loose the strap on your sandal. How, how can I be the one to baptize? You're God. You baptize me. But Jesus said to him, in order for all righteousness to be fulfilled, 
baptize me. Just do what I've said. Just trust me here. So John, finally, he baptizes him. And then he raises him back up out of the water. And at that time, what happened is the, the, the son's being baptized. He's raised up. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And the Father, all three of the Trinity involved in the baptism of Jesus, the Father, what does he say? He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He says it and he sends his Holy Spirit to descend upon him like a dove. And that's his seal of approval. So for... The, the Holy Spirit to descend upon these Gentile believers in the same way. It's showing all those that witness it that God's involved. He's okay with this. This is, this is of Him. This is His seal. And the Holy Spirit that God gives you and I, just like He did them, just like He showed on Jesus, the, the point of the Holy Spirit is like a stamp of approval. And in those days, to mail a package over to a different country, that seal would say, this is the king's. He's allowed, this package is allowed passage over the border and to where it's sent to. And so everyone would know, whoever that king's seal is, don't mess with it, because if you're messing with that package, you're messing with the king, and he will, he will have vengeance on you. He will deal with you, because if you're messing with this package. And so it's a sign of a seal of approval, but it's also a sign that we're his. The Holy Spirit on us is a sign that we're his. He identifies with us. He, he says, this is, this is my child. And so for Peter to see this happen, it's more than just something miraculous happening. He's excited because he's going, these people who were once afar off from us, who we were at war with when we came into the land of promise, these pagan nations, they're no longer just other people. They're no longer second class citizens. They're one of us. They're part of the family of God. God has given them the love that he's shown us. How amazing is that? We don't have to argue with them anymore. They're, they're our peeps. They're our family. They're one of us. And so Peter's excited about this. This is something completely new. God has taken uh, Peter's understanding of, of him and just blown it out of the water. And so Peter's excited. He's coming down off the mountaintop of this experience, this salvation going outside of the nation of Israel. And as he's doing that, he returns to Jerusalem. And he's excited. He wants to tell everybody, guess what happened? Guess what I saw? And as he gets there, we're going to see in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea, they heard the Gentiles and had also received the word of God. So as Peter gets there, word has already traveled really quickly. It's beat him to Jerusalem quicker than he could walk there. And they're all excited. No, they're not excited. They're, they're upset. They're upset with Peter, and we're going to see why. But word had already traveled. This was big news. Verse 2, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, excuse me, those of the circumcision contended with him. That word contended means that they criticized him. They were not happy with him. This was a great contention. They weren't just arguing verbally. They were raising their voices. And so when Peter came up to Jerusalem, he's excited about telling them, guess what happened? And they start criticizing him. But why? Is it because of what he said? Is it because of salvation? No, it's because of how he did it. See, Jews believed that, that the Gentiles could be saved. They believed that God had a plan for them, possibly. But the only way that they could be saved in the Jewish mind was they had to be circumcised. They had to come through the law of Moses. They had to come and make sacrifices. 
But Peter, they had to follow all the rules and the regulations that God had given them in the first five books in the Pentateuch. But they're upset with him, and it says why there in verse 3. They were saying, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You had, me- you had a meal with them. Great that they're saved, but why did you eat with them? That, you're going to get spiritual cooties. Why would you go in and eat with those people? Because see, in their mind, they're still looking at them going, they're, okay, great, they're saved, but they're still second-class citizens. I'm not sitting with them. And so they're, they're seeing this. They're contending, they're criticizing Peter over what? The kingdom of God is more than food and drink, Jesus said, but it's about life and the spirit. So salvation is way more important than what we eat, where we go, what we touch, who we hang out with. Now don't get me wrong, bad company corrupts good morals. We are supposed to be around the brethren. We're supposed to fellowship with one another. But people that are not saved cannot be saved unless we get outside of our own little box. And Peter's getting ready to tell them this. So they're criticizing him, and he's getting ready to give a defense for what's happened. But his defense is not going to be him saying, well, you know, I was justified in doing this because this, this, and this. He's going to say, his whole message is going to be, it wasn't my idea. I, I understood just like you do. I believe that Gentiles can't be saved. See, in the Jewish mind, they believed that Gentiles were basically kindling or wood to tend the, fel- the, hell- the, the fires of hell. That we were just made to make the fire bigger in hell for punishment. But that's not what we were made for. And so there in verse 4, Peter gives testimony to what God has done and how he did it. And he even uses scripture to explain all that's gone on. So in verse 4 it says, But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. Peter could have very easily said, Hey, who are you? You guys, I'm an apostle, okay? I'm not a B-postle, I'm an A-postle. I'm like first string. God sent me. He's shown me these things. You guys just need to get in line. But he doesn't. See, Peter writes in 1 Peter, can't remember what chapter at this moment, but he writes... Therefore, let us grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we think about growing in grace as getting to experience more of God's grace. But growing in grace, the best way to learn about grace, God's undeserved favor towards us, is by actually putting it to practice. Recognizing what God has done for us and even considering us and saving us and realizing that it took him explaining it to us, revealing the truth to us, in order for us to understand it. So sometimes, God teaches us something, and no one else will get it. No one else will understand us. They won't be where we're at yet. And he gives us the opportunity to not get upset with them, but to bring them up to our speed. Not that we're better than them, but God's given us a word. And so sometimes, we understand something a little bit more about God than someone else does, so that we can explain it to others and they they can grow too. And Peter's getting ready to do this. He's going to make an example of this. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners and it came to me. Now if you were with us last week, it's just he's retelling the story of what happened. 
But anytime God repeats something in Scripture, we need to take heed, we need to listen closely because it means that He's trying to get it through our thick skulls. He repeats things just like parents repeat things to their kids because they know the first time they probably weren't listening enough or they probably weren't listening at all. So Luke pins this down because it's such, it's such an important time in the growth of the early church. That's why he's repeating himself. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, he's very honest here, he says, I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Not so, Lord, I've never done anything like this. He's, he's very honest about his first response to the Lord was to be disobedient and to deny what God had just told him to do. Anytime you hear something from God and you say, not so, Lord, you're being disobedient. Now, he gives us long-suffering. He's patient with us. He doesn't say, well, you're not going to be obedient. You're done with me. He, he gave Peter the same message three times. It says there in verse 9, But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. So he just tells them, hey, look, God had to show me this three times. I'm kind of thick-skulled. You guys know me. You know that I can't learn things very easily. God knows that too, and he was willing to tell me three times. And Peter recognized this, and so he was willing to be patient with these people that were criticizing him and stop and say, hey, look, I know you don't get it, and just a little while ago I didn't get it either, but let's, let's learn together. This thing that God's shown me, I, I want to show it to you so that you can uh, experience this awesome thing that God's doing. So at that very moment, he tells them, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So this thing that you I think I just went like Lone Ranger on, and I just went over and I was going to go preach the gospel and eat with these Gentiles... First of all, it wasn't my idea. God sent me. Second of all, I wasn't the only one that witnessed it. It's not just me going out and doing my thing and coming back and say, hey, look what I did. I took six guys with me because if God was going to do something new, I wanted other witnesses so it wasn't just my testimony when I came back. So he took six men with him. Verse 13, And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. These people that Cornelius sent, they sent them to me so that I could come back and explain to them salvation. They were hungry. And I began to speak the excuse me, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't just go off of his experience. Experiences and things that happen in our lives, they're not based on anything other than what we've perceived. 
But he backs it up with what Jesus had told them there in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus had said, John baptized you with water. But when I baptize you, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's more than just an outward sign of an inward change, but I'm actually going to give you my spirit and seal you like I was talking about earlier. God seals us with his Holy Spirit and he directs us by his spirit. You notice that when Peter explained, hey, the spirit told me that I was supposed to go with these men. So what Peter is telling them, he's sitting there and he's explaining this. He's telling them, look, this number one, this wasn't my idea. I, I don't have plans that are this far reaching. It was God's idea to send Cornelius' men to me to get me. So number one, it was God. Number two, remember that it was God who told me to go with them. And number three, it wasn't me that approved of it. This wasn't my work. It was God who sent the Holy Spirit to them. So if anything, the only thing that I was was an instrument that was a part of it. And I was a witness to the event that took place. When I come back here telling you what happened, I'm not telling you something I did. I'm telling you what God did and I got to watch. And the things that God does in our lives, if we were really honest about them, oftentimes we kind of, we have this I did it attitude. Like we did anything. And it's funny because oftentimes I remember growing up, helping my dad do things. But most of the time, the only thing that I did as a son with my dad doing a project was I hindered him. I slowed him down. I lost his tools. I couldn't find his tools. I didn't even know what I was doing. Like he was giving the instruction. He was trying to do the work while I was fiddling around in the background messing up his, his plans. And God does that. He uses us to do these things that inside of our, we could never come up with these plans. But when he does them and we recognize that he does them, he'll get the glory because we'll just look back and go, it, God did it. It wasn't me. And so his defense is not, hey, you know, don't criticize me. It was, hey, I get it, and I would have criticized it too, but I was there, these six guys were there, and God did it all. So Peter explains to them that it was all God. And he doesn't defend himself. Let me repeat that. He doesn't defend himself. Christians don't need to defend themselves. God is our defender. God is the one that will do the work. He's the one that will be with us in it. And when people criticize us, he'll be the one to defend us. We won't have to defend ourselves. And instead, he gives evidence to what God has done. Let me ask you, how many times do we, like these, uh, these Jewish uh, disciples, these Christians, we see God do something amazing through someone. They want to tell us about it. And the first thing we do is we go, how dare you do it that way? You know, remember the, the command that Jesus had given them in Acts chapter one, verse eight was he, he told them, he said, look, I'm going to the father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the purpose with which I'm giving the Holy Spirit to you is so that you will be witnesses of me to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the outermost reaches of the earth. This was something he commanded them to do. He told them, this is what you're going to do. Peter comes back to, from Caesarea. He's left what they think is the ends of the earth to go somewhere else. He comes back to tell them, and their first thought is to criticize them because they think they have this small view of God. But lastly, let's take a look at what Peter's explanation did 
for those that were criticizing him. Because of the way that he handled criticism, because of the way that he responded to criticism, those that were opposed to him, those that were his enemies in this situation, look how they turn around. Verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, when they heard what Peter proclaimed to them, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. See, Peter had a message to give to these men and women. He had an explanation for them, but he could have very easily, with the wrong heart, with the truth, but with no love, he could have responded to them in a way that did not convince them because of the way he delivered the message. But because Peter was patient with them, because he didn't defend himself, because he reasoned with them from Scripture and and gave them a reason for why what happened, they responded, they were silent. How many times do we argue with people and right afterwards, what do they do? They, they respond to us. It becomes the shooting match with words. But because of the way that Peter handled himself, because of the explanation he gave, because he even quoted Jesus and, and realized that God was doing something bigger than they had already understood, these people that were contending and criticizing him, they were silent after his explanation. They had nothing to argue with him. The same thing happened with Stephen. If you remember when Stephen was contending for the faith, he was discussing with the Jewish people that did not believe in Jesus as Messiah. It says that when they argued with him, they they couldn't resist his wisdom. They had nothing to argue because everything he said, they recognized it as true. Now they still put him to death. They were angry about it, but they were silenced. And the same thing happens here with Peter. His enemies are silenced. And their first response is to give glory to God. They recognize that God had also granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. So let me ask you, are you like Peter, where God has shown you, hey, I want to use you, and you're going to go outside of your comfort zone, I'm going to use you to reach people that you thought were unreached, and you go, you're excited, maybe God even saved somebody, and you get to witness it, and you come back, and you get criticized. You ever been there? I have. But the reality is, is that God's going to give you a defense. He's going to be your defender and he's going to get the glory at the end. He will silence all of our enemies. He has the last word. Or are you like these who criticize Peter? Have you ever been on the other side where God does something amazing and the first thing you can do is try to shoot holes in what they said happened? Consider it. You know, maybe it is something false. We do need to make sure that we just don't accept everything that comes our way. You know, signs and wonders, miraculous things do happen, but we also need to recognize that our, our, our enemy, our adversary, Satan, he can do miraculous signs and wonders. In Revelation 13 and in Matthew chapter 24, uh, the Antichrist that Jesus taught of and then John wrote of in Revelation 13 He's going to come into the world and he's going to do miraculous signs and wonders. And many will believe that he's the Messiah. Those that rejected Jesus will accept him and say, this is the Savior. Here he comes. Look at all the miracles. But we always have to look through the grid of Scripture as the fruit justifying what's actually going on. And so, um, are you that person that, that maybe criticizes before you pray about it and say, Lord, is this something you've done? We have to be sure that we listen to the full testimony because we might find out 
that when we reject what God has done through one of his disciples, we might find ourselves enemies of the disciples of God. And he looks at that very seriously. So we need to you know, consider things in the light of what scripture has to say. But in both circumstances, what I want to point out is that Peter had just gone through a growth spurt. He had just learned something that was a very hard truth for him. It changed his idea about what his culture had taught him raised up. When he was raised, he was taught that Gentiles can't be saved. And then God changed that in him. So then he was sent to other people that were raised in the same culture. And rather than getting upset and frustrated with them, what he did to them was he showed them what God had first shown him. God can save to the uttermost those who come to him through faith in Jesus. And sometimes I think we forget that. We put limits on God's love, on his grace. And we, can, we don't consider the people that maybe we look at and outwardly it's like, man, God can't save them. But we have to have a bigger picture of what God can do. Because whether we have a right view of ourselves or not, if he can save me, he can save anybody. And that's what he showed through the, through the, through the testimony of Peter. We're all created equally in the sight of God. We're all just as doomed for hell without Jesus as our Savior. And when we really realize that, we won't put limits on God's love. We must let God remove our biases, our prejudices, our opinions about people, even the ones that have wronged us. We are all created equal in His sight, and we must therefore share His love with all of our fellow mankind in order for the greatest amount of blessing to come from Jesus' greatest amount of suffering, unjust suffering that ever existed. So let's not limit God's love. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you are willing not only to love us, but to love us before we ever knew you. Thank you that when we cry out to you, in truth, that you hear our prayers and that you respond, that you show your love to us in a mighty way. Father, please remove our prejudices, Remove our cultural traditions even if they cause us not to love like you love. Thank you for your grace and the way that you're willing to be patient with us. Shown today's passage, um, you know, your, your disciples, because you show grace and patience with us. We, we have the opportunity, we have the responsibility to love other people like that. Even religious people that think they know. Uh, Lord, help us to recognize that, that they need to grow just like we do. And Father, uh, in the times where we are the ones that need to grow, Lord, give us humility. Help us always to be moldable so that when you're trying to teach us a new thing, we don't reject it completely. Even if it's given through someone that we don't typically have a lot of respect for, Lord, make us moldable. Make us useful vessels, Lord. Purify our lives. And Lord, uh, as we are humble in your sight, um, make us hungry for your word. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for... Um, his disciples. Thank you for Peter and how much grace that you showed in his life after he rejected you, you restored him. No one's too far until they breathe their last breath, Lord. And we thank you for that. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's... Uh...